Father, thank you for today. Thank you for all of the different kinds of reminders that we have even heard this morning, even in the last song, about your greatness. And it's encouraging for us to know a bit more about you. It's encouraging for us to know that you're not against us in your greatness, but you are for us because of your great son, Jesus. As the psalmist prayed, we pray now, open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think I'll ever forget the first time I was ever with parents who were facing the death of their child. And the memory is vivid. I was 19 years old, as I can recall, and I had nothing to say. Perhaps I said, I'm sorry but I really had nothing to say. Today, we're going to look at the end of John chapter 4, and Jesus is going to have something to say. Jesus is going to say to a man whose son is dying, your son will live. It's quite a contrast. Your son will live. What we'll do this morning is work our way through the end of chapter 4 because we're studying the, the gospel of Jesus according to John and that's where we are right now and we'll work our way through it. We'll hopefully learn some things along the way. We'll hear Jesus say, we'll hear it twice, your son shall live. And then what we'll do is we'll take the time uh, to, to pause and reflect a bit on the implications or the ramifications or the so what uh, what, what do we walk away with? What, what do we learn from this passage? Uh, what do we learn about life? What do we learn about death? What do we learn about hope? What do we learn about healing? What do we learn about Jesus? Jesus as the Messiah? So we'll go rather quickly through the passage, um, and I think it's best to save the so what kind of for the end, and that's what we'll do, and we'll draw everything back to a complete closure and, and see the greatness and significance of Jesus in our lives uh, and the promises that he has to us. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're in chapter 4, we're at verse 43, and we're going to go through verse 54. So John four forty-three to 54 is our text. Then when we're done, we'll look at some important conclusions regarding Jesus as he would relate to us. John four forty-three says, After the two days he departed, that would be departed from Samaria for Galilee, verse 44 says in parenthesis, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Sounds Awkward. In fact, it sounds awkward enough. I'm going to go back and and ask you to go back. We won't do this with every verse, I I promise. But if you go back, after two days, he departed from Samaria. That's important. He's leaving Samaria and he's going to Galilee. And then we have this statement. "For, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. It's a bit odd. Odd. It's a bit 
feels a bit uh, disjointed. Jesus was just in Samaria where they welcomed him. He was there two days and that's really odd. Because Jesus was a Jew and Jews hate Samaritans and Samaritans hate Jews. Okay? And he was there because the Samaritans believed in him as the Jewish Messiah who would be their deliverer too. So they welcomed him. Okay, it's striking. We looked at it last time. I promised not to re-preach it. But it was a striking oddity, if you will. And now he's moving on. He's leaving that good experience with the bad people who came to believe in Jesus. And now he's leaving... But it does say that he, he, he himself has said that, that a prophet's not wanted in his own, own hometown. Well, in our context, in the flow, that's actually saying something positive about Samaria, which is weird because you shouldn't say anything positive about Samaria if you're a Jew. But they welcomed him as the true prophet. Not like where he grew up like in Nazareth, because the same quote is used for Nazareth. But in our flow of things, not like, this is weird, like in Jerusalem, not like in Judea, not like where the Jews are. They, of all people, should have welcomed him. They, of all people, should have put two and two together and they, say, they should have said, this is what our Bible says, this is Jesus, it's a match, we welcome you, right? But they haven't, and that's what's stinging, and that's what's so upside down and strange and awkward and puzzling, ironic. I do remind you in John 1 verse 11, we we got a preview of this when it says he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. Now let's keep going. Verse 45 of John 4. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So Jesus was with many, 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 many other Jews down south in Jerusalem for Passover, the Passover feast, and now he's made his way back up north, he's been in Samaria, and now he's in the Galilee region, and there were other Jews who like Jesus, were in Jerusalem for Passover. So they saw what he did in chapter 2. They saw his boldness and his bravery. And they saw him stand up against the institution, if you will, and corruption. And remember, that's when he turns the tables over. And it's a sign, we learn from John, that he's, he's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. Okay, So now he's up in Galilee. They saw, they're interested, they're drawn to him. Even if it's for the wrong reasons, they're drawn to him. How about verse 46? So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. I don't want to re-preach the sermon here either from chapter 2, but I just want to remind you that He's back in Cana, Galilee region, where he made water wine. And when he made water wine, that was a... I'm not trying to rhyme here. That was a sign. Okay? John is filled with these strategic signs. Signs that he's truly the one we've been waiting for. 
to deliver the people, to forgive, to bring reconciliation. And he's back in Cana where the first sign happened. He turned water into wine. And remember, that wasn't just a slick magic trick. Remember, it, to show he's a good mu- uh, magician. Remember also, it wasn't just only to show he's powerful. Indeed, he's powerful. But remember, and if you weren't here, learn for the first time, and in case you don't know this, it was a sign turning water to wine, a sign he's Messiah. But it's important because in the Old Testament, wine is symbolic of God's blessing. Okay, Wine is something that you enjoy when there's not war. Wine is something that you enjoy when there's been a good harvest. When it's been a good year. God has blessed us. And so it, it's symbolic, it's strategic. And in the Old Testament, it talks about that ultimate day of peace. The ultimate day of deliverance. The ultimate day of God's blessing will be a time where there's lots of wine. Just like there's lots of big, huge, wonderful harvest. There's plenty. There's peace. So I bring this to your attention now because he's setting us up for another sign. It's not just a magic trick. It's not just showing that Jesus is powerful. Okay? Water to wine, he's Messiah, ultimate deliverer. Now he's going to heal someone. Same kind of thing. It's a sign. That is a sign of, oh, he's the ultimate deliverer we've been waiting for, bringing health. If you would like passages that have to do with uh, wine um, and blessing in the Old Testament, you can jot down Amos chapter 9, where the mountains are dripping with sweet wine, the, the hills flow with it, And God says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. I mean, it's it's just about God's blessing. Jeremiah 31 is another one that talks about the new covenant, which is associated with Jesus. And it's a time of, of, of abundance. Jeremiah 31, 12 to 14, the goodness of the Lord with grain and oil. There's rejoicing. Uh, there, there's, um, it says they shall be merry. He turns their mourning into joy. He comforts them. Uh, He turns their sorrow into gladness. There's healing. They're satisfied with the goodness of the Lord. Again, I just want you to to kind of be reading this like you're you're, you're Old Testament informed. And sometimes we're not. He's back in Cana, first sign. Water to wine. Oh, could this be the coming kingdom we've been waiting for? Is he the coming king? And now we're going to see something that's not a random act of love, not a random act of kindness, though it's loving and kind. Verse 46 says, second part, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. One thing you don't pick up in the English translation, he's an official. The, the word for official is, is, a, is a word for kingdom. Okay? He's an official of the king. So it comes from the Greek word for king, kingdom. It's a kingdom kind of word. And so somehow, this is not... I read it the first time and I thought, oh, he's a Jewish official. 
No, I don't read it that way. He's an official of the king. Probably not a Jewish official. Doesn't say, but probably a Gentile official. If he's, if he's an official of the king, he works for the government. Okay? And governing the region would be Herod. Herod's not technically a king, but he is called a king because he's ruling under Caesar, ultimately. He's called a king in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. And so when I read official, and it's meant to be read this way, he's a governmental official. He's an official of the king. Why is that important? We'll come back to that. But I want you to be thinking, why would it be important? Verse 47. When this man heard, this official of the king, that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Easy to read, probably worth me asking you to try to at least sense some of the pain of a father whose son is at the point of death. And people will rightfully, understandably, do desperate things. And he's desperate. Seemingly, he's willing to do anything. Put yourself in his shoes. So he goes to Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you, and it's you all, so he's addressing those in the region even. Unless you all, you and these others, see signs and wonders, you all, again plural, will not believe. You can say, he is just really dogging this guy at the wrong time. Or you could temper that a bit, and I would say, let's temper it a little bit. There's nothing inauthentic about the signs. The signs are legitimate. The signs need to be there to prove that Jesus is the one. And yet, we've already learned in John chapter 2 that Jesus knows that, that the signs are not the ultimate thing. And when the people demand the signs, sometimes they believe in the sign, and then they don't actually believe in the Savior. And so, I read it with a little bit of rebuke, a little bit of push but not as a lambasting. But Jesus knows. Ultimately, they should take Jesus at his word. But we don't. It could be a bit confusing. That's fair enough. It's a bit confusing. The human heart is a bit confusing. Don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe. He proves who he is, and then, you know, 2 plus 2 is 17. It is confusing. But there's a little pushback from Jesus about signs, signs, signs. But Jesus lovingly lowers himself, right? The big fancy theological word, he condescends, right? He steps down and he's going to love and he's going to show kindness and compassion and mercy and he's going to perform a sign. And we can all be thankful for that. 
the official said to him, Sir, come, this is 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, hear my, hear my favorite words, your son will live. Then it says, in 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going back down, so he's going down in, you know, down to the shore of Galilee. I think it's like 700 feet below sea level. So that's why he's going down. As he was going down, his servants met him because they're on the way and told him that his son was recovering. Verse 52, so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that the, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. There it is again, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. And did you notice that? That the man believed and then he believed. He believed in verse 50 and now he believes in verse 53. You see, he's believing in the promise that Jesus is going to do this and now he's believing in the promiser, if you will. Believing in Jesus as Messiah. Everyone in this household is believing in Jesus as Messiah. Verse 54 says, Now, it doesn't say that, it says, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. It's not the second sign in John, but it's a second sign here. Because remember in chapter 2, the turning of the tables is a sign also. How about some conclusions? How about some important conclusions from our passage that are important for you, that are important for me as they would have been important for these folks? Number one, I have six on my list. I'm sure there are more. In fact, I just thought one up as I was helping work our way through the passage. But here's a list of six at least. Number one, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And, and some of you are giving me the uh-huh. And if you were here last week, and the week, if you've been here with us for a while, hopefully you're for sure going, I, I, I understand, I know where he's going. And if not, that's okay. And if you're just joining us and you say, uh-huh, I know where he's going, it's because you've read John before. And if you're like, I have no idea where he's going, it's just because I'm confusing. <laughs> like, like never before, I'm ready to say, here's a conclusion for you. Jesus is the Savior of the world. You see, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 42, when he was with the Samaritans... It says there at the end of 42, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Well, why would they be saying that? Well, they would be saying that because He's not only the Savior of the Jews. He's even the Savior of the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were essentially a cultic break-off of Judaism. Okay? Anybody who's going to be saved has to be saved from this guy. 
He's the Savior of the Jews. We could learn in chapter 3, like from Nicodemus. And then in chapter 4, we have Samaritan, even the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, who's seemingly the unsavable, and then of all of her kind, and he brings salvation to them. Savior of the world. But now let's carry that theme on because chapter divisions are made up for convenience. He's the Savior of pagans who work for kings. We, we could say Gentiles. Uh, now, we don't know if this, this man, this servant of the king was a polytheist. May have been. Many, 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 many gods. That was popular. Or if he were an atheist. We, we, we don't really know. doesn't matter. He's definitely outside of the pale of those who profess to worship the one true living God, Yahweh, if you will. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Anybody who's going to be saved is going to be saved by Jesus, and Jesus saves all different kinds of people. He's the deliverer of all different kinds of people. He's the one that all different kinds of people need to believe in. It's cool to see, it's important to see that we're seeing this from Jesus himself. He goes to this kind of person, he goes to this kind of person, he goes to this kind of person. Now, it's also interesting if you go back to the Old Testament and the promises of Messiah, he's not only for the Jews. He's for the nations, which would be outside of the Jews. So this is not a plan B. This is how it's been. It's important for us also when it comes to missions, when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, proclaiming Christ, to know that as Jesus was, was, was transcultural in his mission, transreligious, if you will, we're to be transcultural. We're to be transreligious. No boundary is a legitimate boundary because he's the one and only Savior. This is why the church is to be made up of all nations, Right? just makes sense. There's neither what? Jew nor Gentile or Greek. Galatians chapter 3. He's the one and only unique kind of Savior. But remember too, that inclusivity, which is wonderful, and we of all people are inclusive. Right? Not even winking. I have a little smirk on my face because he's the inclusive Savior, because he's the one and only Savior. But we, we do know that that ends up getting us in, in political trouble, if you will, or it's not PC, because if he's the one and only Savior, the inclusivity is, it's exclusive. Because everyone must believe in Jesus. He's our hope. And sometimes we emphasize one or the other, and, and we, we really shouldn't. Okay, let's go to number two. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. That kind of sounds silly. I have a list of important conclusions about Jesus the Messiah. Number two, Jesus is the Messiah. Um, <laughs> But our passage does help us to see that he's the Messiah, right? He brings healing to the nations. He brings restoration. 
This is a preview of that, but certainly he's showing that he has the power to do that. We'll see on other occasions, not just people who are dying, people who are dead. And he has to have the power and ability to do that, and we're seeing that that he does that. He brings that, and therefore he brings restoration, and therefore he brings joy and rejoicing. He's the Christ. As you read your New Testament, and if you've heard me say this a hundred times, I'm sorry, this is for everyone else's benefit. As you read your New Testament, it says Jesus Christ. Jesus who is the Christ. Christ Jesus. Christ means Messiah. It's just the Greek translation of it. And so every time for effect, so you might feel it better, think of things like this. Think of, he's the one who turns water into wine so there's abundance and rejoicing. He's the one who takes people who are dying and makes them well again. He's the one who takes dead people and makes them alive so there's not mourning over tragic things. There's rejoicing. There's joy. There's restoration. Jesus the restorer. Jesus the long-awaited restorer. Jesus the perfect restorer. Jesus the one who makes people happy. And I mean that in the greatest, profoundest sense. Jesus who brings joy. We're seeing that in our passage. For so long, I've I've read the Bible, and for so many years, I I read read the Bible, and you're like, yep, Jesus, that's cool. That's powerful. It's better than that. He's the one who came to do what was designed by his father to do from the very beginning. He's the one. Number three, Jesus is, uh, I've already done this, but Jesus is the key to your joy. Jesus is the key to your joy. Messiah passages again and again and again in the Old Testament are joy passages. Things have been bad because of sin, because of the conflict that sin brings, because of the suffering that sin brings, because of all of the rough things in a broken world. Where does true, lasting, significant, unwavering happiness come from? We call it joy. It comes from Messiah. It doesn't come from the better circumstance because the better circumstance is going to become a not-so-better circumstance until Messiah returns. So our joy, our steadfast happiness, if you will, is wrapped up in Christ. And if He's the Messiah, then it's genuine. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 are, are keepers, if you will, when it comes to this. That's why the people sing for joy Isaiah 53, even, one that we know well as a messianic kind of passage. He himself bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He brought us peace with his wounds were healed. Yeah, the sorrow is gone because he's the one who's going to bring healing because of his work. Which is where we get life from. I mean, if we want to be theologically sophisticated and not say much and, and have a conversation and say, where is your true joy? You say Christ, but you mean Christ Messiah, fulfiller, long-awaited one, came to earth, 
proved it. It's not just in my heart or in my imagination. If, if you want to just have it carry theological weight, you say it's Christ. It's God's anointed servant, as we read in Isaiah, who was given as a covenant to the people. Solemn oath that this would be done. It's great. Number four, Jesus is essential to your healing. That's an important conclusion about the Messiah. Jesus is essential to your healing. Let me go on record first and say that I think health, wealth, and prosperity preachers are liars. By and large. And now, now let me say that they're right. In part. They're right. In part. The way for you to overcome your suffering, sickness, and death problem is Jesus. It's your only way. Passage after passage, there's joy and rejoicing. Passage after passage, it's tied to Messiah who will bring abundance and riches and wealth. I've even read portions of them this morning. And healing. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Isaiah 53, by His stripes... You are healed. There you go. Let's go home and watch us some TBN. Health, wealth, and prosperity preachers get it wrong. They get it wrong for different reasons, but they get it wrong because they confuse it. Now, th- this is what you paid for, by the way. Here, here's, the, here's the theology part for the day. They get it wrong because they confuse what the Bible doesn't confuse. Okay? And, and let me give you a category for this. Let me give you a label for this. They confuse the already with the not yet. And I'm not trying to be... I'm not trying to pull one over on you. But that's just a good label that Bible teachers have used for a long time to explain what the Bible teaches. The already and the not yet. And I'll show it to you in the, in, in the Bible. You can go to 1 John now if you'd like to. But as you're turning to 1 John, it's almost the last book in the Bible. The already is Jesus has done this. Jesus has accomplished this. Oh, by the way, when, he, when he's on earth, he's giving previews. Because remember, the guy's son would eventually die of other causes. Because Jesus has to go to the cross, Jesus has to be resurrected, and because Jesus is going to be the firstborn from the dead, the one who will never die again. The already is, once the cross happens and resurrection all that, 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 his work is done. He's been raised from the dead. He's called the firstborn among many. Okay, and, and we're united to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, Romans chapter 6. That's the already. And how about this? This is what I love. 
The already is, the Bible speaks in terms of you already benefiting from what he's done. Okay? Romans chapter 8 would be an example where uh, you've been justified, you've been all of these other things, and it says glorified, Romans 8.30. Perfected? It's already done. The Bible speaks of you, of you already being raised, but you haven't. We're waiting for the not yet. We're waiting to enter into that, to fully experience that, to, to receive all of those things, even though they're ours, like an inheritance, and the Bible speaks of, of, of an inheritance that is ours in Christ. It doesn't mean it's yours yet. It doesn't mean you've actually got the money in your account yet. It may have been promised to you. So there is this tension in the Bible between the already good as done because Christ's work is done. And it's been promised to you as good as done. But the not yet, I have to experience it. So 1 John is helpful when it comes to already not yet. Because it does it for us. How about 1 John chapter 3 verse 2? 1 John 3 2. Beloved, we are God's children. Notice the alreadiness. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, huh? see, there's something still to come, right? There's a, there's a not yet. And what we will be has not yet appeared. There's already not yet right there in our passage, even though it doesn't use the exact same verbiage. But we know that when he appears, notice it's in the future, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Already, to the point of confidently knowing, not yet experiencing in all of its riches. And if you don't see the distinction, you're going to be super confused. And you're going to send your money into lots of 1-800 numbers. Don't do it. But it is true, if you believe in Jesus, you will have perfect health. Not yet. You will be prosperous. Guaranteed. Guaranteed not yet, though. You see? It's different. How about even in Romans chapter 8, the context is what? Suffering. <laughs> right? I mean, Romans 8 is life sucks and then you die. Is Romans 8. Oh, but, but there's more to it than that. Because of what Christ has done for us, it's to the point of glorified. But in the here and now, it's suffering. We just have to keep that straight. So when we read a passage like we read today, in our text, Jesus is proving, He's giving a preview of coming attractions, of what he has the power to do and what he will victoriously do on the cross and what he will victoriously do by ra being raised from the dead, which is our resurrection too. But to think that it is yours in this life is to have a total confusion of categories. And eventually it starts looking not very Christian. Not always, but a lot of times what the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers will end up doing is then taking the emphasis off of the perfect work of Jesus and putting the emphasis on you. 
The reason you're not healthy, wealthy, prosperous is because you don't have the right kind of virtue. Well, that's a works kind of salvation. You don't have good enough faith. Well, genuine saving faith is not virtuous in that it is resting in the work of another is what it is. So I'm taking a little extra time on this because it's a big deal. But please don't think for a moment that we don't believe in perfect physical healing. Because we do, because of Isaiah 53 and Romans chapter 8. But it is in the category of the not yet. But Jesus in the here and now proves that it's not just pie in the sky. It's real. Okay? Enough about that. Isn't it amazing though to think about healing? It is amazing. Glorified body. Christ-like kind of resurrected glorified body. No suffering, no pain. When you read or say, Jesus Christ, if you're really giving that word the weightiness that it should carry, Jesus the healer who's going to give me a perfect body one day. wonder how old we'll be. Don't know. Let's move on to number five and then six. Five can be quick. Jesus teaches that there is faith and there is faith. To put it another way, there's faith and there's faith. put it the exact same way with a little different emphasis. The idea is, this comes up again and again in John. Came up in chapter 2. There's faith in the benefits and there is saving faith. They're not always in um, conflict or tension, but sometimes they are. This particular man believed for the benefit and it led to saving faith. In chapter 2, it didn't work that way. Number six, finally, Jesus is the key to eternal life, not just temporal life. And I say this because of our context. Chapter three and chapter four, he's been emphasizing believe for eternal life. Believe for eternal life. It's one thing to get a drink of water and sustain your physical life. Believe in me for eternal life. It's one thing to get your belly full for physical life. Believe in me for eternal life. So it would make sense now that we would read our passage in that light. The man believed for the physical life of his son. And even though it's not spelled out and articulated, he and then all in his house went on to believe in Jesus in a different way. Before eternal life. It's confusing sometimes because physical life is actually one of the benefits of eternal life. In the end, it's not really confusing, I guess. You know, I wish I could turn back, in a sense, turn back time to when I was 19. And I wish I could say, knowing what I know now, I wish I could say to those parents, by the way, they were parents of an adult child, I wish I could say to them, 
as they were facing the imminent death of their son, I wish I could say, Grandma, Grandpa, your son will live. If you believe in Jesus, he will live and he will live forever, not just spiritually, but one day physically. We have the words of eternal life, my friends. Let's be good ambassadors. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for real time and real space when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth and became one of us and he did these things. He showed, he proved that he is Messiah and that he can take people who are dying and even people who are dead and make them alive. And that is a promise for everyone who will believe in him. May everyone here today find themselves believing in Jesus, resting in Jesus. And not only that, may we find ourselves wanting to tell other people that their sons and their daughters and their friends and their family members, they will live if they believe in Jesus for eternal life. In his name we pray, amen.